So there you are, Moses. You believe in a God who judges. No surprise there. We kind of figured that. You're an Old Testament guy, aren't you? So you're not one of these people, Moses, who believes that uh, God pours out love and compassion all the time. And Moses would say, hey, wait a minute. Welcome to Open the Bible with Pastor Colin Smith. And Colin, I think we tend to either see God as a God of judgment or alternatively as a God of love. But you're saying we need to see him as he really is. Yeah, that's right, which is both. And you see both of these reflected in the uh, book of Deuteronomy, and we're going to focus on that together today. You know, my love for the book of Deuteronomy goes back to the first time that I read it in one sitting. I did that as a student. We were given it as an assignment. Read the book of Deuteronomy through in one sitting. And I was moved by the degree to which the love of God is absolutely overwhelming. The judgment of God is there for sure, but his love overwhelms his judgment in regards to his people. It's a marvelous thing. Well, there might be some folks listening to us who'd like to read the book of Deuteronomy right the way through. We had a public reading of the book of Deuteronomy at one time. It took about a couple of hours in our church. It's a great book. It will take you to the heart of God's judgments, but it will reveal to you the overwhelming love of our God. So we're in Deuteronomy chapter 32 today as we begin the message, The Goodness and Severity of God. Here's Colin. It's my great joy and privilege as a pastor to try to explain as clearly and compellingly as possible from the Bible why Jesus Christ came into the world and what that means for us today. And I want to do that today from the book of Deuteronomy where we've been over these last weeks But I want to begin with a front page that um, caught my attention from the newspaper USA Today. They led with the uh, headline, How America Sees God. How America Sees God. It is a good title because the article is not uh, purporting to tell us how God is. It is merely telling us um, from a survey how we as Americans see God in which, of course, we may be right or wrong or somewhere, as it were, in between. The article is based on a study that was conducted over the last four years by two sociologists from Baylor University in Texas. Their work has just been published in a book that is called America's Four Gods, What We Say About God and What This Says About Us. And quoting from the article reviewing this book um, on the lead of USA Today, they say, if you pray to God, to whom or to what are you praying? When you sing God bless America, whose blessing are you seeking? Is God by our side or is he beyond the stars? Is he wrathful or is he forgiving? Is he judging us every moment or someday or never. Now, the sociologists identify four different views of God, each of which they say from their survey are supported by approximately a quarter of all Americans. Um, I found it interesting that from this survey over the last four years, they say that 5% of Americans are either atheists or agnostics, 5%, that's quite a bit up on what it used to be, But that still leaves 95% of us, according to this survey, the last four years, who have some kind of belief in God. But what kind of God do we believe in? That's the interesting question. 
Well, the sociologists say that 24% of Americans believe in, a, and I quote, a distant God who, quote, booted up the universe and then left humanity alone. Now, on this view, of course, life is basically down to you. God has uh, booted up the universe. Uh, he leaves it to us. Um, the article here quotes a rabbi who identified with this view of God, and he says, quote, there's no one that can fix things if I mess them up. Well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? You see, God's so detached from the world, there's no one who can fix things if I mess them up. And according to USA Today, uh, that is how about 24% of all Americans think of God. Merely started things off, but basically it's down to us. And you will immediately recognize, of course, that that is not a Christian view of God. Because the whole point of the gospel is that Christ came to the world precisely because we have messed up and we need a redeemer. It's the very core of what is revealed in the gospel. Now, a second view of God identified by the sociologists is that, again, God is disengaged from the world, but that he will make things right in the end in, in heaven and that somewhere beyond this world, everything will be okay. Now, this is essentially the view of God that was dismissed memorably by Karl Marx. You remember he said of this kind of view of God that religion is the opium of the people. The phrase that we know it by is, pie in the sky, finish it for me, when you die, you see. Now, according to the survey, uh, about 21% of Americans uh, see God like this, that he's not going to do anything in this world, that basically your lot is what it is, uh, therefore, there would be no particular reason for, for praying because God's not going to mess with anything that happens here. But at least you can have the hope that somehow, somewhere, everything will be all right in the end. Now, again, that is not a Christian view of, of God. Why would God take human flesh and leave heaven and come to earth if he were only concerned about the things in heaven? Now, Having looked at, at, at these two, it was the third and the fourth view of God that really caught my attention and are the reason for bringing this to you today. The survey says that 28% of Americans see God as, quote, engaged in history, that means he's actually at work in this world, and meeting out punishment to those who do not follow him. I was actually surprised by that. But according to the survey, 28% of Americans believe in a God who punishes. Then the survey goes on to say that a further 22% of Americans believe in, quote, a benevolent God who is a force for good, who cares for all people, weeps at all conflicts, and will comfort all. So get the picture here. According to the sociologist reported on the front page of USA Today, 28% of Americans believe in a God who punishes, and 22% of Americans believe in a God who loves. Now, I don't know how these researchers laid out their questions, but at least the way in which USA Today presents their conclusions with these four kind of hermetically sealed boxes 
kind of implies that if we believe in a God who punishes, we cannot at the same time believe in a God who loves. Or if we believe in a God who loves, we cannot at the same time believe in a God who punishes. And I think, having studied Deuteronomy, as we have over these last weeks, that if you were to say that to Moses, he would kind of stroke his beard and furrow his brow, and he'd say, really? And I'm trying to imagine, in, in, in my little mind, the researchers with their clipboards, kind of run, running their um, survey tool on Moses. Moses, do you believe in a God who meets out punishment to those who do not follow him? You bet I do. Let me tell you about the plagues in Egypt. Let me tell you about the time when God sent venomous snakes when we were in the desert among his own people, when we had spoken against him and grumbled and complained. Now these snakes bit people with their venom and many died. And then I think Moses would choke as he said this. He'd say, let me tell you about how I struck the rock. Oh, that wretched, foolish, costly act. And God said to me, Moses, you will not enter into the promised land. And I see the researchers putting their pens away. So there you are, Moses, you believe in a God who judges. No surprise there, we kind of figured that. You're an Old Testament guy, aren't you? (laughs) So you're not one of these people, Moses, who believes that uh, God pours out love and compassion all the time. And Moses would say, hey, wait a minute. Let me tell you about how God delivered us on that night of the plagues in in Egypt. Let me tell you about the bronze serpent that was lifted up on the pole. And when I lifted that bronze serpent up, those who looked in faith to this gift that God had given, they were healed of the venom and their lives were saved. Let me tell you about the sacrifices that were given so that even though in this world I will not enter into the promised land, my name will not be blotted out, but rather I have peace with God. Reflecting on this, there's a verse in Scripture that has come to me. It's so important for us to grasp. It's Romans chapter 11 and verse 22, where the Apostle Paul says, Behold, therefore, the goodness and the severity of God. Romans 11:22. It's really worth knowing and remembering. The Apostle Paul says, what you're to look at, and he's writing to Christians in Rome, so this is for us very much. Paul says, here's what you're to look at. Here's what you're to consider. I want you Christian people to behold the goodness and the severity of God. And Dr. Jim Packer, commenting on this verse, says, Christians are not to dwell on God's goodness alone or on his severity alone, but we are to contemplate both together. In other words, if you want to know who God really is, as opposed to simply projecting your own imagination or intuition about him, as so many people do, what you need to do, the Bible is saying, is to consider his goodness and his severity. You have to consider his mercy and his judgment. You have to consider his love and his wrath. And I'm suggesting to you today, and this is the reason for this message, that you cannot understand Christmas 
unless you grasp the goodness and the severity of God. You're listening to Open the Bible with Pastor Colin Smith, and Colin began the message there by talking about how our culture sees God, and maybe even how you see him. But when we come back, we'll look at the drama of God's goodness and severity. And if you tuned in late, or if you've missed any of our series, which is called Take Two, The Power of a Fresh Start, then you can always go back and catch up or listen again online at our website, openthebible.org.uk. Also, you can find our messages as podcasts. Go to your favourite podcast site, search for Open the Bible UK, and subscribe to receive regular updates. Back to the message now. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Here's Colin. Now, preparing his people for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which of course is the centre of what the whole Bible is all about, Way back in the book of Deuteronomy, God is impressing on the minds of his people these two great truths, his goodness and his severity. And we've seen it running all the way through the book of Deuteronomy. And when we come to the end, this is the dominant theme that Moses lays before the people. He wants this to stay with them more than anything else. This is what will enable them to understand Jesus Christ. And so God presses these twin truths into the minds and hearts of his people in remarkable ways. And I want you to notice this morning that he does it through drama and he does it through music. God is very concerned that we get certain things. And so if you open your Bible at Deuteronomy, I want you to see first the drama and then the music. The drama is in chapter 27 and chapter 28 the drama of God's goodness and of his severity. Now remember Moses addressing the people, the verge of the promised land, and he says, now I'm not going in with you. Moses is going to die as we'll see next week, God willing. Go and be with the Lord. But they're going into the promised land. And he says, now when you get there, here's what you're to do. You cross the Jordan and you're going to go past two mountains. And these mountains are called Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And when you get to Mount Ebal and Gerizim, I want you to send, Moses says in chapter 27, verse 12 and 13, I want you to send some representatives from six tribes up one mountain, and I want you to send six representatives of six tribes up the other mountain. And then when all the people of God, when you're all marching through between these mountains, as you go past Mount Gerizim, The folks up there are to shout out all the blessings that will be upon you as you walk in obedience to the Lord. And then when you walk past Mount Ebal, the guys up there are going to be shouting out all the curses that will come upon you if you disobey the ways of the Lord. And so if you have chapter 27 open, you'll see there what the Levites are to shout in verse 14, uh, verse 15. They're to shout out as the people walk along um, the valley there. Cursed is the man, verse 15, chapter 27, who carves an image and casts an idol. And you notice at the end of each verse, as these curses are listed, all the people are to say, Amen. Amen. Which means, so shall it be. Verse 16, cursed is the man who dishonors his father and his mother. And so it goes on right through the chapter. You see it there. Worst of all, verse 26 at the bottom, cursed is the man who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out and all the people shall say, amen. Can you imagine how vivid this is? 
They're walking past this mountain. There's all these guys, and they're saying, if you disobey God, you're going to be cursed in the city. And you say, amen. That's how it's going to be. I know. I know. I agree with that. Then someone says, if you disobey God, you're going to be cursed in the country. Amen. Then you walk past Mount Gerizim and and there are people up there saying, if you obey the Lord, you're going to be blessed in the city. If you obey the Lord, you're going to be blessed in the country. Would you ever forget such an experience? Every time the kids came back to these mountains, oh, there's that mountain when these men were shouting all the bad things, and there's that mountain where the, the men were shouting all the good things. Could it have been clearer? God blesses, God punishes. There are blessings that follow righteousness. There are curses that follow rebellion. And as the people felt this in the drama of their own entry into the promised land, they're saying, amen, 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 because they're not just to hear it, they're to own it. Now, not only is God teaching them through this drama, but as we turn over now to chapter 31 and chapter 32, he reinforces it even further through a remarkable song. And again, the song is on the same theme. The whole of the end of the book is about this one thing. You've got to get it that there's the goodness and the severity of God. Don't think about the one without the other. You'll always end up in error that way. Consider the goodness and the severity of God. And it's impressed through the drama. Now it's impressed through a song. Chapter 31 and verse 19. God now speaks in private to Moses and to Joshua. And he says to them, write down for yourselves this song. Teach it to the Israelites and have them sing it. Moses becomes the choir director. He becomes the leader of worship. He's got to sing a song himself. I I don't know what kind of singer Moses would have been. But he has to teach this song to Israel and teach it to them so well that the congregation can all sing it by memory which we're not going to manage today because the song is in chapter 32 and you'll see it runs for 43 verses. In fact, it uh, tells us, if you look there in chapter 31 and verse 30, Moses recited the words of this song from beginning to end in the hearing of the whole assembly of Israel and bearing in mind that the dear man was 120. That's not bad memory to be able to recite chapter 32 at the age of 120. What do you think? But God gave him this song because it brings together the very essence of what his people have to know in order to know God and what we have to know in order to understand Christmas. Now you'll see then that the message of this song is the same as the message of the drama and indeed the same as the message of the whole book of Deuteronomy and indeed the whole of the Bible. It begins in its first half, verses 1 to 26, with the severity of God. And as Moses sings this song, he rehearses in the earlier part the blessings of God. From verse 10, let's pick this up. There's a catalog of blessings here, both blessings past in the desert and blessings that would come in the future in the promised land. Verse 10 of chapter 32, God 
found you in the desert. God has shielded you, verse 10, and he has cared for you. God, verse 11, has guarded you like an eagle guarding its nest. Verse 13, God nourished you with honey from the rock and with oil from the flinty crag. I love that phrase. And it's beginning to speak about the blessings that will come to them in the promised land, you see. God's blessings in your life, my friend, and in mine are more than we can number. But Moses goes on to describe prophetically the choices that God's people will make. And the rest of the Old Testament simply is an outworking of everything that Moses says here in this song. Verse 15, one of the most striking verses in the book of Deuteronomy. Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. I said to Karen the other day, isn't that an amazing verse? She said, well, yeah, but what in the world does it mean? Jeshurun. If you've got very good eyes in a pew Bible, you will notice perhaps bottom right-hand side of the page that there's a footnote there that simply says, Jeshurun means the upright one that is Israel. The upright one, Israel. So you say, well, now why not simply say Israel then? And I think the answer is that by using this name Jeshurun, that means the upright one, God is speaking about his own people at their best. And he's saying to them, here's the truth about you at your most upright. Jeshurun, you at your most upright, grew fat and kicked. Now, God is saying that is precisely what I know you're going to do. You're going to grow fat and kick. You're going to receive my blessings and you're going to credit yourself and then when something goes wrong, despite all the blessings that I have poured into your life, what are you going to do? You're going to resist me. You're going to resent me. You're going to speak against me. You're going to doubt me. You will grow fat and you will kick. And God says, I know that this is what you're disposed to do. Isn't that amazing? God knows what's in your heart. God knows what you want to do this week, even before you do. You receive my blessings, you credit yourself, and you kick against me, and that's true of my people at their best. I know this. You've been listening to Open the Bible with Pastor Colin Smith and our message, The Goodness and Severity of God, and we'll continue with this message next time. It's taken from our series, Take Two, The Power of the Fresh Start. And if you've missed any of the series or you'd like to go back and listen again, you can do that by coming online to our website, openthebible.org.uk. You can also find us as a podcast. Go to your favourite podcast site, search for Open the Bible UK and subscribe to receive regular updates. Also on our website, you'll find Open the Bible Daily. It's a series of short two to three minute reflections based on Pastor Colin Smith's teaching and read in the UK by Sue McLeish. Open the Bible is supported by our listeners and we're able to stay on the air and on the internet because of your generosity. If you'd like to begin supporting us this month, we have an offer for you. It's a book. It's called The Christian Manifesto and it's by Alistair Begg. Colin, what's special about this book? Well, Alistair takes us to the heart of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, as it's called in Luke's Gospel. And so we're into the teaching of Jesus that is just radically different from anything 
that we would ever find anywhere else. And Alistair draws this out in the most marvelous way. I mean, for example, here's what he says about Jesus' teaching on taking the log out of your own eye before we try and remove the speck out of someone else's eye. He says, it starts with me admitting that it's likely not my wife who needs to change, but me. It's not my co-workers who are the problem, but me. It's got that kind of personal, practical honesty. It's written with great clarity, great grace, and great wisdom. Alistair says, we are not called to be like the world, and the world does not need us to be like the world. We have something better to say because we have someone better to follow. It's a wonderful book because it points us so clearly, practically, and hopefully to our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. The book's called The Christian Manifesto by Alistair Begg, and it's our gift to you if you're able to set up a new donation for the work of Open the Bible this month in the amount of £5 per month or more. Information about this offer and lots of other information besides is available on our website, openthebible.org.uk. For Open the Bible and Pastor Colin Smith, I'm David Pick, and I very much hope you'll join us again next time. A God who weeps over evil but is unable to do anything about it is not a good God. Find out why next time on Open the Bible.